0: joy to be with you today to worship our good God together on this Palm Sunday 2022. If you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of 1 John, you'll find this letter in the very back of your Bible, Uh, if you're just before Jude and Revelation, so it's way back there, and then just after 2 Peter. um, It's been a, a true joy to preach through this letter and God's been at work in many mighty ways. As you turn there, I want to share that it is our commitment and conviction here at Disciples Church to preach God's Word expositionally and faithfully. <clears throat> Expositional preaching is the faithful practice of preaching that focuses on explaining the meaning of Holy Scripture in its God given context. The word exposition simply means out of or explanation of. Our expositional preaching is the explanation of Scripture that is based on diligent study, careful exegesis of a passage within the context of all of Scripture. Scripture interpreting Scripture. This practice is sadly... All too rare in a modern setting, many modern day attempts at preaching by which pastors are guilty of eisegesis, which is the opposite, which the preacher inserts his own thoughts or priorities upon the text outside of its God-given context. Disciples, family, and loved guests, it is my God-given job to not entertain you this morning, to not tell you what you want to hear. Uh, to not tell you what I want to tell you, but to faithfully preach God's Word so that you can apply it rightly to your life as God intends it to be understood and applied. It is a great privilege and joy to preach God's Word, and it's a high responsibility that myself and our elders take. do not take lightly. Um, so I pray it is a true blessing for your life in so many ways Uh, that God would use it to illuminate your soul with saving and enduring faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to look at 1 John chapter 4, 9 and 10 this morning, but not just this morning. We're going to build out of this same two verses for our Good Friday service in a few days, and next Sunday for Resurrection Sunday. And the reason why is because John elevates God's love, made manifest to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So well in these two verses. And so, look with me at our passage, 1 John 4, 9 and 10. And see with me, church, the gospel of love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Pray with me, church. Father in heaven, we come to you humbly this morning, full of gratitude for this day that you have made, the opportunity to gather with the saints and worship you together in unity lord you've brought us out of discord and and disunity and and war and strife and and backstabbing and slander and gossip and all the ways that sin has been at work among mankind you've you brought us out of prideful individualism and and being right in our own eyes. You've given us saving faith to know you, to trust our lives to Jesus, that we could walk by faith, that we could be united by your love at work in us, that the one another's would go to work in our lives as the church would be a bright light of the gospel for a watching world that is sin sick and desperate for you alone. Father, this is an incredible uh, opportunity you've given us to know you, to love you, to be loved by you, and, and to share that love with those that you put in our path. So Lord, I pray that you would make us ready this morning uh, to listen, to hear. That You would move through the preaching to the hearing. Lord, that that the hearing would be faithful, it would be focused, that we'd put away the other things that has us distracted in our lives, the the things that have us full of worry, that we would look to you to be anchored in God, to trust you, to know you, to know your love, and to be moved by you for the life that you've given us in the days to come, so as you will it. Lord, it's a joy to gather this morning thank you for each one here today and the work that you intend to do in their lives do that mighty work holy father we pray confidently because of christ amen before we dig into verse 9 i'd like to circle back to the most famous passage we probably see in this entire letter first john chapter 4 verse 7 and 8 it's the two verses that precede verse 9 and in them we see probably the most clear definition of the origin of love in all of Scripture. Look with me. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The origin of love is God. If you were going to go on a lifelong expedition to to find the origin of love, its incredible source, its origin story, all roads would lead to God himself. Understand that love is not something that God came up with. It's not something that he created. It's not something he thought would be good for us, and so he gave it to us. No, God is love. Love is an eternal attribute of who God is. When you think of love, you need to not think of Cupid or romantic movies. You need to think of God. If you want to know true love, you must know God. If you don't know God, if you don't belong to Him, if you still are are His enemy because you stand guilty in your sin... Then Scripture tells us you don't know true love. What you know, what you think you have is counterfeit. It's a replica. It's man-made. Why? Because God is love and you don't know God. What a joyful, wonderful, profound thing to think that God, who is love, has made His love known to us to whom He's redeemed. On this Holy Week of 2022, we look to the gospel of love, the good news of love, of God's love made manifest among us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ And in his life, death, and resurrection, God reveals his love in the most profound way. Understand, God does not just say that he loves us. He doesn't just proclaim that. He he doesn't just proclaim he has love for his chosen people. He does that in his word. But he shows us. He has shown us. His eternal and perfect love has been shown to us. John says here in our passage in verse 9 that God made manifest his love among us. How did he do this? By sending his son into the world. 1 John 4 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. Today, church, I want us to see and to savor God's love specifically revealed in the life of Jesus. In the life. Friday, we'll focus on the death. Sunday, on the resurrection. Today, the life. We must see God's love for us in Jesus taking on flesh and living without sin. The accommodation that the eternal God the Son made to put on flesh, to humble himself, is astounding. We see it here in verse 9. God sent his only Son into the world. God the Son arrived on the scene. What does it mean to us that God arrived? that, That he showed up? Well, you... Likely have been in a really hard season of life yourself. A moment of time where things were not going well. And someone showed up for you. And it meant the world to you that they were there. Right? That is is but a glimpse. It's but a taste of the magnitude of how God showed up for us in the life of Christ. Christ. Especially when we rightly understand the situation we were in. right? We were damned in our sin guilt. Rightly separated from the Holy God. Rightly deserving his eternal wrath. And God showed up to save many of us. He shows up in a way that redefines the phrase, showing up. God showed up just as He promised He would from the fall in Genesis 3.15. Church, see with me how God's love is shown in the radical sacrifice and the wonderful miracle, not yet of the death of Jesus, but of the incarnation of Jesus. And this is emphasized in in a very special way today on Palm Sunday. In that Jesus willingly entered Jerusalem. He willingly showed up on that Palm Sunday knowing what he came to do. Knowing what would happen. He came even though he knew he would be arrested, falsely accused, mocked, tortured, and murdered on a criminal's cross. So that we, his people, could be saved. So that he would rise from the grave and be the forerunner of resurrection. Jesus lived his life so that we could know the love of God. Now and forever. This is this foundational first point of the good news, the gospel of God's love for us. I want you to see the good news of God's love made manifest in the life of Christ today. And so to help us do this, I want to ask you to go from where you're at in the very back of the New Testament to the front of the New Testament to the gospel of John Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fourth gospel there in the order of your holy scriptures. And I want to see John, the same author as the letter of John, in the gospel of John, he's testifying of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and has the most profound teaching of the arrival or the incarnation of Christ in John chapter 1, verse 14. Before we get to verse 14... Uh, I can't help but circle us by the opening words of John's gospel. They are magnificent, wondrous. As 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 John, in almost nowhere else in Scripture, looks back to eternity past, before creation, to speak of the love of the Triune God. John one one through four. In the beginning was the Word. This is reference to Jesus Himself. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the testimony of Jesus, the Word. Jesus is God. Jesus has eternally enjoyed perfect unity in the Holy Trinity, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three in one. Before there was time, before anything was created, each member of the Holy Trinity enjoyed the fullness of the glory of God, of the love of God. Then that love was put on display in this most magnificent way in the life of Jesus. Look with me at verse 14. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. The Word again is referring to God the Son. Jesus Christ who humbly took on human form and a human nature, fully God and fully man. In this, in Jesus taking on flesh, we see the wondrous testimony of the doctrine of the incarnation. The eternal God the Son to put on flesh. This is the good news that the invisible God became visible In the physical life of Jesus Christ. The incarnation does not mean that God dwelt in a man. But that God the Son became a man. He became what he was not previously, though he never ceased to be all that he was before. The babe that was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born in Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary was named Jesus Jesus means Yahweh saves, the name of God. God saves. He was also given another name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the love of the one true God is not a distant concept or promise from afar. It's made manifest to us. It draws near in the life of Jesus himself. The word became flesh. Jesus was a normal looking man. He looked like a regular guy. He was born from the womb, as every person is. He had a mother and a father. He grew up as any child does, he learned to walk and read and write. Luke 2.52 says he grew in favor and stature and wisdom with men and God. He had friends. He was betrayed. He was happy. He was sad. God the Son became a real man. The key difference is that Jesus' flesh was sinless. Hebrews 7.26 tells us that Jesus was holy innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. Jesus took on flesh. He lived without sin so that he could be our perfect and final sacrificial lamb. Even though he was tempted in every way as you and I are, he did not ever sin. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest, Who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. His flesh went through them too. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Why is this so important? Because of what he came to do. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin. To be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on flesh. His flesh was perfect without sin. He did this so he could take on our sin. The guilt that the wrath of God, it was put on him. And we get his righteousness. So that we can be reconciled to the holy God and enjoy Him, and live in His love, now and forever. This is truly good news. The fact that Jesus took on flesh, church, is astounding. God's love was made manifest in the life of Jesus. See God's love for us in the fact that God came to dwell with us. To humble Himself in an act of sacrificial love to enter into human history so that he could save us so that he could reveal god's eternal love for us church john 1:14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us don't let that just be a fact of history let that knock you over this is huge Let it boggle your mind. Let it it capture your soul. Let it inspire your life. God, dwell among us. The word dwelt here in our English translation, it, it means tabernacled. To dwell means to tent or encamp. To reside. Just as God did in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That was the place that God dwelt. Now God dwells among us. This means the eternal and glorious God the Son, Jesus, pitched his tent on earth for 33 or so years. This was a great and humble act of love. See the mission he went on. See the accommodation He made for us. See His sacrificial love for us at work. And look with me to the next part of verse 14. John 1.14 And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The phrase in our English translation here, we have seen, in the Greek, it is so much bolder. The Greek word there is beheld. We beheld his glory. To behold something is different than seeing it. To behold means to look closely at. To look intently at. Those who have seen him or beheld him here is directly in reference to the first disciples. But it is now the blessed experience of all of us who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior and are reconciled to God through Christ. We get to behold the glory of God in the life of Christ again, there is something very different about beholding something and seeing something. It really is kind of everything here, or we miss the point. We see a lot of things in our daily lives. But what are the things that we really stop and behold? I think the practice of beholding is all too often lost on us as a modern generation. Uh, Why? Because we live in a fast-paced society. Uh, We we have fast travel. And how frustrated you get if the car breaks down and you have to walk five miles, right? Or or put out, right? We have fast food. And so when the food's not really fast, we get Grumpy. We have fast, fast download speeds. It wasn't that long ago where, what is download speeds? And now we complain when they're not really fast. We are a habit now culture. And so, in that, then we don't really stop to behold very much. We see a lot, but what are we really? beholding, looking intently at, pausing to really take it in and and I just want to ask you to make that personal in your own life what are you beholding in your life? who or what do you look intently at with wonder and awe and really take it in you could ask what is worthy of our beholding And the gross problem is our war with sin, even for us who are redeemed, is we often, too often, behold the wrong things. Things that we really slow down and behold. Things that are too often sinful things, wicked things. So I ask you, what are the images, the scenes, The people that you behold. What what or whom are you looking closely at? And I'm not going to list of what those things might be. You know what they are for you. Listen to it again. We have beheld His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Church, I want you to not miss this game-changing reality of the love of God made manifest among us in the fact that we can now behold the glory of God. We must behold the right things. And there are many good things to to slow down and behold that would honor the Lord. but, But there is nothing better than God himself. Anything good in creation, even the loved ones that you're sitting next to or cherish, are a distant second compared to God himself. The glory of God. God made manifest in the life of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Paul speaks of us as redeemed Christians in our salvation and our redemption now he says in 2 Corinthians 3:18 we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is spirit why why is that so huge but because until the incarnation the physical life of Christ It wasn't even possible to do this, to behold the glory of God. The heroes of the old covenant, uh, for example, Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, he's given this wondrous moment to, to peek into heaven, and he testifies, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and around him were angels crying out, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of His glory. But the Old Testament heroes of faith, like Isaiah, they they had occasional or passing glimpses of the glory of God. But in contrast to these who only saw, but for a moment we get to behold the glory of God in the life of Jesus it's good news because before Christ's incarnation the Shekinah glory of God only resided in the Holy of Holies and therefore it was a veil that was hidden but now in the physical life of Jesus we behold the divine glory of God the late theologian Reformed theologian A.W. Pink says it really well when he wrote this. The glories of our Lord are infinite. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. No subject ought to be dearer to the heart of a believer. And so I ask you, brother, sister in Christ, is Jesus the most dear thing you behold? Do you see his glory in the life of Christ and you are boggled, you are moved? He who is worthy of beholding, who is worthy, more than worthy of beholding, none like Jesus, not one. May we be so very attentive to the things we slow to behold and repent of our desire or the over-attentiveness placed on God's creation, especially when our gazing is caked in sin. We need to see and savor, savor the love of God shown to us in Christ himself, behold God in flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. may we not forsake our opportunity to behold god 's glory in the life of Christ. This is what John is holding up in first John four nine In this, the love of God is made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Church, please don't be unsatisfied or critical of the way that God has revealed His love for you. (laughs) How, How much more can he make his face shine upon you and show you his love than in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. You have what you need to be so moved by the love of God. You don't need another event. You don't need something else to happen. Nothing matches this. You don't need a new miracle to behold to experience the radical love of God. You have it. It's yours, Christian. Behold the gospel of our Lord, the life of Jesus. Let it fill your soul with his love and cause you to praise his name. One more thing I want to point out here in John 1:14. Look at the end of the verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Do you understand that the very arrival of the Messiah meant the arrival of grace and truth? The Word. This this is backed by John's reference to Jesus as the Word. The, the, The Word of truth. The truth. God who is truth is revealed, the truth is revealed in Jesus, the word. And then the work of the Messiah to bring redemption to his people through means of great grace. We're guilty in our own thinking of pulling God down to somehow make him obligated to say that he's obligated to save people, ourselves, others that we love—that is to diminish his holiness and somehow make light of man's sin. To say somehow that God is obligated to do that—he's not—and and we are not deserving of his love. I know we think highly of ourselves and of others that that we love, but. But we we make a mess. We, we, We make light of the fact that God is holy. His standard is holy perfection. And we don't meet it in our sin. So to say, well, just give him a pass is not to meet the standard. It's to ask God to adjust. We don't deserve to be forgiven. His grace means that although he was not obligated... And we were not deserving. He still chose to save many of us. This is amazing. Mankind's guilty of saying, why not save this person or that person? And We have this deep bitterness that we can really struggle with. But when we understand our sin and the holiness of God rightly, as revealed in Scripture, we would not say, why don't you save everyone or these people that I love. We would say, I'm amazed that you save anyone because of the gap. He overcame that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The price was paid. Jesus is the arrival of truth and grace. See the beauty of this. Consider why grace and truth are both essential there. For a moment, I think we can fly right by it and we miss it. If Jesus only came in truth, we would all be consumed because of our sin. Judged perfectly by the law. Right, But praise God that he also comes in grace. He comes in the fullness of grace and truth. The glory of God the Son is full of graciousness towards us sinners without compromising God's truth. When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished fully. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. Do you understand that? Christians who were saved didn't get... Some kind of weird past. No, Jesus paid for our sin. The guilt we had, he took it on. And all the wrath we deserve for eternity, Jesus bore it. When we get to Friday night, our temptation is to overthink of the physical pain that Jesus went through. And that is nowhere near the pain he endured to take on the wrath of God, do our sin, That's what he's praying in the garden to say, can you remove this cup from me? He's not saying, don't take my flesh off my body. The cup he has to be removed is the the wrath of God. The love of God made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. When Christ died, God was so gracious to us because Christ bore our punishment that we were due. The glory of God has been revealed in history as never before the fullness of grace and the fullness of truth that shines most bright in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for undeserving sinners like you and me if your Bible is open to John 1 notice verse 16 if not it will be on the screen a few verses later after John 1 14, John says this for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace The use of the word fullness here brings out the absolute deity of Jesus. The same word is used in Paul's writing in Colossians chapter 1, chapter 2. Let me read those to you quickly. He says in chapter 119, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 In Him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him. Church, Jesus Christ is full. There has never been or will ever be anything lacking in Jesus. He is full. He is complete. He is satisfied. He is God. Now watch this. Out of His fullness are we who are redeemed and born again, faith in Him alone, are we, out of His fullness, are we filled and made complete. Anything else you might dip the cup of your life into will not fill you like only Jesus can. Jesus is sufficient because despite what popular man-made movies are trying to pitch you, no one else can complete you. No one else completes you but Jesus who is full problem is all too often those who would claim Jesus are busy scrambling to look for things in creation to complete us so we look to income or our looks or status or our kids athletic journey or or whatever these things might be to essentially for them to serve as our functional savior And what we end up with when we chase these things every time is dysfunctional saviors. Why? Why are they dysfunctional? Because they will never be able to be what only Jesus can be to you. (coughs) Only Jesus is sufficient. We have to see that rightly. Or were duped. In every wedding that I'm privileged to perform, do you realize a pastor stands in this most intimate space at a wedding altar? A bride and a groom are going to die to themselves to be united, to be one, until death do them part. No decision you ever make is as big as that. Outside of being saved by Christ. No decision you ever make, right, on your own. To choose to be united to one. And in that moment, I, I, I have to love them enough to tell them to look at that beautiful bride and say, look at him. This amazing man that you're committing yourself to for the rest of your life will never be to you what only Jesus can be to you. Because the moment, the season, the lifetime that she looks to him to play that role... He will be a dysfunctional Savior to her. He will never be able to fill that role. Only Jesus. Only Christ is sufficient. You can't fill it with your own efforts. You can't fill it with another object. In the context of that Colossians 1 verse I just read, it is here in Holy Scripture that we are given this magnificent... Picture, a description of Jesus in who he is, in his eternality and his supremacy. Just hear this as I read it real quick. Colossians 1 15 through 23. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. All things that are visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and are for him. They exist for his glory ultimately. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We we don't give God enough credit for that. Right? Pastor Rob prayed about it earlier, that, that God is actively, he caused the sun to rise. He, he, he's causing the ground to hold together, your very body works this very moment because the Lord ordains it so. The molecules of the chair that you're sitting in so you're not on the floor is held together actively by Jesus. Every moment. We don't give him enough credit. He's so present, we don't don't even know how to give him credit. He's so active, he's not far away. He's active. The very existence of your brain to even consider that he would not be is the result of his activity in your, in your very life. Holding all things together. Verse 18 He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, See, Paul's words here in Holy Scripture proclaim massively the eternality of Christ. He has no beginning, no end. He's eternally God. Reigning forever. Reigning eternally from before time with the Father and the Spirit. Paul's words also here emphasize the supremacy of Christ. He reigns and rules over all things. He's eternal and he's supreme. And yet, watch this now, he is willing to enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday knowing what he'd have to go through. You've got to see his majesty so that him riding a donkey over some muddy coats into the city through some humble fanfare. You have to see his majesty to be awed by that. And and so let's take a moment and peel that back. Let's look to the Palm Sunday text because the life of Christ, the love of God in the life of Christ is shown to us on this day. I pray it's a blessing for you today. Um, Witness this moment. Let's look to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, 28-38, and then we'll pick up a few verses around this text. And I'll give you some clarity of what's happening here. When he said these things, he went on ahead, go up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany... At the mount that is called all of that, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it, just as he had told them. Verse 33, As they were untying the colt, its owner said, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. To understand the humble love of the Lord in this triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, we have to have a better insight into the formal entry of a ruling authority in that day. And so to do that, consider Pilate with me. Pilate ruled had the authority over Jerusalem as the Roman governor of that area. Pilate's superior would have been Caesar himself. During Jesus' day, there were a few times of the year that Jewish people were supposed to go to Jerusalem to celebrate some specific holidays together, as the Lord instructed. The Romans were the ones charged to rule and keep order in Jerusalem, But during these celebrations, the Jews would so outnumber the Romans that if they wanted to unite and revolt, they would completely have overtaken the Roman authority that was present. Pilate, the Roman governor, would have surely felt the weight of this, that unrest was around any moment. So it was stressful. So there had to be a powerful display to put some fear in these people. And so Pilate, who lived in a mansion in Caesarea, during these big festivals, would, would then move to a residence there in Jerusalem, festival specifically for this one, the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, is what they're gathering for. So Pilate would march into Jerusalem for this festival, and his procession would be of one of massive authority and flex designed to really try to tell people, don't ever dream about raising up against us. right? Led by the Roman emblem, the big eagle, behind that there would be this huge procession of elite Roman soldiers. They would carry the etchings of the Caesars. That was their way of reminding everyone of the great dominant victories and battles that had been won, and now this global rule of Rome in that day. Right, The metal shields, massive, clanking, making noise, stomping their way through. Here comes this this readied force. And then Pilate would enter on a horse, a huge stallion to show power, to show authority, another part of military conquest. Pilate enters Jerusalem that week on a horse in all this fanfare and flex from the west. In Luke 19, what we just read, there's another entry happening from the east. Jesus is going to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. When we understand the the context and the landscape, that's from the east towards Jerusalem. To look west from the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem past the Kidron Valley. They bring him a donkey. They spread their humble cloaks on the ground to show respect. They have branches to make fanfare, to see the humility in it. And so, a little more context. When they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, realize to even be professing that Jesus is the king would have been politically so unsavory. Luke 19, 39-44. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They have their own political interest in mind and really don't like Jesus. And he says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. To understand where they are, there's a bunch of stones and graves near the Mount of Olives. The Jewish belief of that day was that the Messiah would rise and and rise the dead of all the good Jews who had died. So they believed he would lead them into Jerusalem and there would be peace and prosperity. And so that's why people wanted to be buried right by Jerusalem in this unique spot. Right? you with me? So when... When the Pharisees tell him to tell your disciples to be quiet, and he responds, even the stones will cry out, he, he's basically saying, I'm the Messiah who will raise these people from the dead. And the Pharisees who are studied know some of the prophetic prophecy that points to it. And, and so this in lies also the moment where we do business with that. Why did he ride in on, on a colt, on a donkey? And the reason is because way long ago in the Old Testament, in Zechariah chapter 9, it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt. Foul of a donkey. the use of the donkey is basically jesus way of saying i'm the one you've been waiting for now back to verse to luke 19 as he approaches jerusalem it says in verse 41 he saw the city and it says that jesus wept over it he said this is jesus if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children with your walls, not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is Jesus' words. He's talking about the demise of Jerusalem. It would happen 70 years later. Jerusalem would crumble The result of the people being focused on a completely wrong idea of the Messiah and the kingdom. Zechariah wrote about this too. In great prophecy, hundreds of years before Zechariah 9.10, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. To speak of the prediction of Jerusalem's fall. And then that verse goes on saying, He, speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Speaking of the actual reign and rule of Jesus. So with that all under our belts now, a little bit of context for us. Pilate comes in from the west, flexing man-made pride and authority to put fear in people. Jesus comes in from the east, humble, humble, Ready to die for undeserving sinners. And in this we see that Jesus' kingdom is way different than the ones that we like to prop up for ourselves. Jesus' parade is for the humble who will ultimately enjoy him. Pilate's parade is for the proud who really are about enjoying themselves. See with me how the glory of God is made manifest in the person of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem that we celebrate. Every Palm Sunday is the celebration in a bigger way of how Jesus came off his throne, humbled himself, physically enters into human history through the womb of Mary, the young Virgin, came as a man, lives a sinless life, willingly fulfills his purpose, which he sees through to the end. He enters Jerusalem that Palm Sunday knowing he is coming to die on behalf of the people that God has entrusted to him to make atonement for. We have to see the power of the incarnation, the absolute importance of the life of Christ on Palm Sunday. See the love of God made manifest among us in the life of Christ. See him who went from glory to humility, from honor to dishonor, from extravagance to poverty. That is the sacrificial love of God at work for you and me. He came in humility, and Paul says it better than anywhere else in his letter to the Philippian church, chapter 2, 5-7. through 7. I'll read it first. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours, church, in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He should have been worshipped and exalted like a king deserves like never before. And yet he was spit upon and cursed and mocked. But he remained humble and full of love for his people and continued his mission. He should have been paraded like a king, but instead he's disrespected at every turn, lied about. And yet he remained humble and continued his mission of love Jesus should have been obeyed, not disobeyed. But he remained humble and continued his mission of love. Jesus humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. Church, see the love of God in the arrival of Christ, in the life of Christ. I pray you do. I pray you see it today in a way that Palm Sunday has a special Reality for you like never before. Palm Sunday is not the throwaway gathering of Holy Week. It's an essential leg of the gospel. Without the sinless life of Christ, we don't have a sacrificial lamb to die on the cross. I pray you not only see the love of God in the life of Christ, I pray you would behold it. You wouldn't just Check the box of having attended church today. Then move on to the temporary things on your agenda today, tomorrow, and the rest of the week. But that you'd be floored, moved, to be still before God, to be thankful. I pray your beholding of the life of Christ stirs your soul to true worship. And in that letter to the Philippian church, chapter 2, he continues in 8 through 11. To speak of Jesus' humility, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Oh, how he has loved us, church. He will be forever worshipped and exalted. If you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ, please hear me in all truth, according to Scripture. You do not know the love of God. You are still guilty in your sin. You cannot come to God on your own terms. That is arrogance and... To the greatest degree, we must know God, be reconciled to God as He has revealed it in His Holy Word. Who am I to say that different? You must humble yourself and confess your sin to trust your life to Jesus. That He would be your representative, that He would be your prize. Salvation is when you die to yourself to live to Christ. There's a transformation there. It's a new birth, is what Scripture calls it. It's not just say a prayer and, and, and go through some kind of religious box to be checked. No, you are reborn. And what's amazing about that is that can happen at any stage in your life. The providence of God to give you saving faith. I don't care how wicked you are, what you've done, how lost you've been that he would humble you and give you saving faith, if this is you today and God is stirring your soul, then go to him in prayer. Confess your sin to him. Trust your life to Jesus and be saved. Go to a mature Christian who's in your life, who God's ordained to put in your life, to, to ask hard questions and seek the Lord. What does it mean to really be saved and belong to Jesus according to Scripture? And if this is you, then you will behold your God now and forever. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to gather, to to worship, to pray, to fellowship together, and to study your holy word. Thank you for the time you've afforded me this week to study and to pray and prepare to preach. And I thank you for the provision for us to be here to hear it to to take it in thank you for the work of the holy spirit in this hour to to move upon each person to bring illumination and clarity and understanding to make war with sin or excuse making or 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 things that are not true you are moving us you are giving us a beholding of you that is so sweet and so life transforming that we It makes everything else pale in comparison. That you would be glorified through our lives as we grow in faith and learn to abide in all that you've taught us in your word. As Christ goes to work in us, that you would be glorified and many others would be saved in your perfect time. And so here we are, Lord. Do your work in our lives. That we'd be faithful with this day. And if you give us tomorrow, then tomorrow too. Hear us as we worship you corporately in this time, respond in prayer. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.